I'm glad they turned the mics on so we could hear that. I've never heard this song before. Uh, what a blessing. My favorite line in the whole song, and there were a whole bunch of them, but my favorite was, you can forget your past. I already have. That's our God. Amen. If your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 11, we're going to look at a couple other scriptures here in a moment today. When the prophet Malachi finished writing the last book of the Bible and he sat his pen down, he was delivering a message that was the word of God to his people. Little did Malachi or any of the Israelites know that that would be the last time that they heard the voice of God in that manner for 400 years. Those years in history, Bible history, are called the silent years. There were no new books of the Bible that were penned during those four centuries of time. There is no record of a prophet of God coming on the scene such as Elijah, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, or anybody like that for 400 years. There were a lot of prayers that went up, a lot of pleas that went up to God because those were 400 difficult years for God's people. The land was overrun by one empire after another. When Malachi penned his letter, the Persians were in control of Palestine. They were overthrown by the Greeks, and the Greek empire fell apart, and the Syrian part of the Greek empire took over. And then the Syrians were absorbed into the Roman empire, and so God's people were were enslaved in their own land. They didn't understand anymore what freedom was like. They had the promises of God that, that God had given that land to Abraham and all of his descendants forever, but they weren't seeing those promises fulfilled in their lifetime. Life was difficult. There were times of intense persecution. There were, there were times when entire villages were being slaughtered by enemies of the nation. And you know in those times the prayers went up, but it seemed like the prayers hit the ceiling and they went no farther. Like the heavens were brass and the, the ear of God was turned some other direction and God's people labored. They were called the silent years. They were called the dark years because of the darkness God's people faced. That all ended with the birth of a miraculous little baby boy. We read about that in Luke chapter 1. A boy that we know in Bible history as John the Baptist. John burst onto the scene as a preacher that was unlike any other that they had ever seen. If you can keep your place in Matthew chapter 11 and go to Luke chapter number 3. The Bible describes John's ministry and how it impacted the nation of Israel. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of uh, Iteria and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Why didn't I choose this as our scripture? So Tim had to read all of those names. Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest. Here it is. The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. God's talking again. God's speaking again. 
And he, John, came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Esaias the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John comes out. He is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Um, he, is, he is a preacher, again, uh, unlike any that these people had ever seen. He didn't preach in the synagogues or even in the temple itself. Uh, his, his cathedral, his chapel was out in the wilderness of Judea. And multitudes of people left their homes, left their villages. They traveled mile after mile after a mile to hear this incredible man preach. He was not suave and he was not sophisticated. He did not wear $3,000 suits. He did not land in his own private jet. The Bible says he wore a garment of camel's hair. Uh, he had a leather uh, belt uh, uh, wrapped around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey whether that was the insect locust or uh, the fruit of a locust tree, either way, ooh, um, uh, that was his diet. A simple man, uh, he was a man's man, he was a fearless man, and his message was an incredible one. He wasn't out there preaching, I'm going to teach you how to live your best life now. There was no prosperity gospel in this. Look, look at his message in verse 7. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. How would you like it if I walked up on a Sunday morning and said, Good morning, you bunch of low-life snakes? <laughs> Nailed it. Be, and, and if I was dead serious about it and it wasn't was tongue-in-cheek humor, a whole bunch of people would be headed to the door because well, that's not what we want. We need someone to stroke our ego and make us feel better about ourselves. He's got this multitude, and we're not allowed to talk about two or three. We're probably talking thousands of people are listening to this guy, and he calls them a generation of vipers, poisonous snakes, uh, that type of thing. And they stayed. They listened. They took it to heart. And, and, and multitudes were there baptized by him in the Jordan River. And, and, and he gathered the respective people. Notice uh, what he says in verse 8. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. He said it's not enough for you to claim that you're sorry or that you're, 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 you love God. Let your life show that there's something there. Let's get away from this lip service to the king, but your life is anything but. Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. The people ask him, verse 10, uh, saying, what shall we do then? What do you mean? What shall we do? He answereth and saith unto them, he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. He that hath meat, let him do likewise. See, what's he teaching? Why don't you learn to treat each other right? Why don't you learn to talk to, each, uh, talk to each other and about each other like Christians? Why don't you start caring about each other? Get over yourself and start being compassionate people. And they listen to it. There's nobody there writing him off. There's nobody there saying, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but they're all taking it to heart. The Bible says, verse 12, then came also publicans. 
to be baptized. Not Republicans, though a lot of them could stand this. Publicans, tax collectors. Jewish renegades who now work for the hated Roman government, they collected the taxes of the people. How many love paying your taxes? Uh, two, okay? Um, most of us don't. Well, the publicans in those days, not only did they have a quota that they were to exact of every person and family, but there was sort of, even though there were laws against it, there was a blind eye turned to their cheating the people. And uh, they, you might owe $50 in taxes and they charge you 60 and there was nothing you could do about it. And they pocketed the rest. And most publicans, like Zacchaeus in Luke 19, were very, very wealthy and, uh, and so forth because of it. Uh, these were people the rest of society in Israel looked down upon. Uh, these were, they would agree, yeah, the publicans, they're the generation of vipers. Those people came under conviction of their sin. And they said, Master, what shall we do? He said unto them, exact no more than that which is appointed you. Be fair, be just, do right, live right. Verse 14, and the soldiers, these are Roman soldiers. These are men raised in paganism. These are men who, in order to be in the army, had to take an oath of allegiance to Caesar, not just as the emperor of Rome, but as a god who lived amongst us. Individually, they would have been reared to worship any number of gods, goddesses, or forces of nature. These are rough and tumble men. These are guys that know the, 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 the warfare and the battlefield. Uh, they're strong. They're powerful uh, men and so forth. And they are brought to conviction by him. The soldiers likewise demanded of him. I think that's an interesting word. They're used to getting their own way. They're used to walking around and just telling everybody what to do. They weren't demanding of him, hey, shut up. We don't like what you got to say. They want an answer. They're demanding of him saying, and what shall we do? These are the pagans that are responding to the message of John the Baptist. He said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, be content with your wages. This man had the respect of every segment of society except, by the way, the religious elite. They didn't like him any more than they liked the Lord Jesus who would follow him. The Bible says, and all the people, and as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their heart of John, whether he were the Christ or not. There were people saying, you know, the same Bible that promised that uh, you were going to come also promised us the Messiah was going to come. Are you the Messiah? That, that's, the, that's the respect that John commanded of the people in his day. Those huge crowds that came, his crowning moment came. Look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, in verse number 29. I think that's where I want you. Ah, uh, let's try John chapter 1. Look at, look if you would please, verse 29. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, seeth Jesus coming unto him. By the way, Jesus in the flesh was John's younger cousin. They were six months apart. We don't know if they knew each other. We don't know what kind of relationship they had. They lived a great distance apart and so forth. But he seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John had the great privilege, the awesome ministry of introducing the Lord Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel. 
All of these people that we read about uh, in Luke chapter 3 that were getting right with God, that were, were repenting of their sins, that were, their lives were being transformed, they're all gathered around and while they're musing, is he possibly the Messiah? Is he the Christ? John just quelled all their questions and he saw Jesus coming through the crowd and he pointed him out and he said, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. John was an incredible preacher. John had an incredible ministry and John had an incredible calling of God. But as we go back to Matthew chapter 11, everything is changed for John. The multitudes are gone. I didn't say dwindled. They're gone. John is no longer in the wilderness preaching and people coming to hear him. John's in prison. He's in prison because of the very things he preached. One being that Herod, the, the member of the Herod family ruling at that time, uh, was uh, having an affair with his sister-in-law. John didn't mince any words and said, it is not lawful for you to have her. This is immoral and this is wrong. And Herod, under pressure from that, that woman, had John the Baptist thrown into prison. And listen carefully, his ministry's done. He's gone from being the number one preacher in his nation to a prisoner in Herod's jail and there's nobody listening to him anymore. He's suffering. He's alone. He feels forsaken. He's done the will of God. He's not there because he was a bad man. He's not there because he was backslidden. He's not suffering consequences of his sin. He's not suffering the judgment of God. He is just there. And he's alone. John's going through a very difficult and a very dark time of his own. And we're going to look at that over the course of the next message or two. But it was during that difficult time that the Savior looked at his own followers, his own multitude. You see, most of the crowd that followed John the Baptist had switched their allegiance and they're now following Jesus. The Bible says John did no miracle. Jesus is healing people and giving sight to the blind and, and, and dead people are being raised and people with leprosy uh, are being healed and demons are cast out and people are getting saved. And, and it's a ministry like the world had never, ever seen in human history. So, if you will, Jesus has taken John's crowd. And uh, Jesus looks at that crowd and he asks them a question Look, if you would, please, verse number seven. As they departed, these are the disciples of John the Baptist, and we'll backtrack to them next week. Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Reeds are hollow tubes that, that grow of dried uh, plants and so forth, and when the wind blows across them, it's, it's like... Um, wind instruments and they, they can make a, a almost musical noise. He said, is that what you went out in the wilderness? You traveled all that way. You endured all the hardships to get there just so you could hear this guy say some pleasant little words. And the answer to that is obviously not. He called them snakes. Okay. Uh, he said, but what, but what went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? 
Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. He said uh, he, he was a rough and tumble guy. He didn't have fashion sense. He wasn't an icon in that, that direction. He was a simple, common, ordinary man. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Oh, absolutely. He said, yeah, I said unto you, and more than a prophet. Because he not only, not only proclaimed the word of God, he was the fulfillment of of the word of God in his own right. And again, he quotes the book of Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which will prepare thy way before thee. Then Jesus says in verse number 11, and here will be our text today. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now John doesn't have a great ministry anymore. He has no freedom, no liberty, no crowd, no audience. And if you will, it seems like no, in, no influence. Yet the Savior said, there has never been a man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. In the book of Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 6, the Bible says this, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. It is human nature to boast about our accomplishments or, or our knowledge or our education or our experience or our talent or any other number of things. Most men will do that. We want to be recognized. We need the pat on the bat. We need the attaboy. We feel like we deserve that. He said, that's the way most people are. I want you to understand this is not John the Baptist patting himself on the back saying, hey, everybody, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I'm the fulfillment of prophecy? Don't you know that I'm the one that, that, that became the voice of God for the first time in 400 years? Don't you know that I'm the forerunner of Christ? Don't you know that I'm the one that pointed him out to you in the first? This isn't John tooting his own horn. This is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ saying, among them that are born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. You know, when we toot our own horn, that's a compliment we give to ourselves. And uh, if you're wise and you hear somebody doing they pretty much take it or leave it, take it with a grain of salt. It's probably not as awesome as they think it is. It's fine when others say boy when others praise us and when others uh, uh, exalt us, that type of thing, for something maybe that we've legitimately done. But do you realize every one of us are sinners in the eyes of a holy God and on our best day, that's what we are. I'm just, I like the song, I'm a sinner saved by grace. By the way, that's a good thing to be. That's a good thing to be, a sinner saved by the grace of God. This is not John boasting on himself. This is not John's followers. He had some loyal disciples that stayed loyal to him even, even though they couldn't really do much for him. In fact, they're going to appear, some of them, in this text in Matthew chapter 11. We'll read as late as, as the book of Acts, I want to say chapter 19. There were still some people scattered around the world that had been influenced by John that, that still adhered to him and they, they were called and identified as the disciples of John the Baptist. This wasn't his people, his followers, those that were extremely loyal to him, talking about John, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God who became flesh, saying, among those that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. 
in your Bible, there, are, there is only a handful of people that God Almighty complimented in such a way. Can you turn to Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, the faith hall of fame. One of the first people in the entire Bible that God made a declaration like he did with John the Baptist was a man named Enoch. Um, Enoch, the Bible says in the book of Jude, was a preacher of righteousness, uh, a godly man standing in an ungodly day. And the Bible says of him in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Uh, he was beamed up. He was raptured. Um, I mean, one day he was there walking with God, and at the end of the day, God said, why don't you just come home to my house tonight? And that's where he's been ever since. Enoch is one of two men in the Bible that never experienced physical death. The other one was Elijah. Um, but, but here's why God did that. Uh, he was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he what? He pleased God. The Bible tells us in, in uh, the book of Genesis chapter 5 where we read Enoch's story that Enoch walked with God. There was something about Enoch's life and his love for God and, and his walk uh, with God that God found pleasing. And God looked down at him and said, I, I, I'm really pleased with the way you are. And remember, Enoch didn't have a Bible and Enoch didn't have a church. Uh, Enoch lived in the world that, that was about to be destroyed in a few generations by the flood of Noah's day. It was that wicked. Yet in the midst of that dirt and that filth and that ungodliness, here was a man that just loved God so much and God saw so much that broke his heart. God saw so much that could arouse his anger. Uh, the Bible says that God was grieved because every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And as much as Greek, God was grieved with the masses and the multitude, he looked down at this one man and said, wow, I am so pleased with you. Enoch, you make me so happy. They grieve me, you bring me joy. Uh, they distress me and you delight me. And Enoch had the testimony that didn't come from him, didn't come from Mrs. Enoch or his kids or his friends. It came from God himself. He had this testimony that he pleased God. Look, if you would, to Numbers chapter 12. You okay with looking back and forth in the Bible? It's a rhetorical question because we're going to do it anyhow. Numbers chapter 12. Moses' brother and sister had a fuss with him. Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not, also, hath he not spoken also by us? The Lord heard it. They're criticizing Moses. They don't like his choice of wives. And they, in order to justify the fact that they were entitled to criticize, isn't it amazing how we do that? That I'm entitled to complain. I'm entitled to gripe. I'm entitled to gossip. They said, you know, we're, we're prophets too. God's spoken by us. 
and the Lord heard that. And by the way, the Lord's going to come down on them like a ton of bricks. But there's a little parenthesis that the Bible places in verse number three. Now the man Moses was what? Very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. It's in parenthesis. God just says, I want you to know what this man Moses was like. He was, he was such a meek man. In fact, in his day and age and generation, there was nobody as meek as he was. Um, a, a synonym for meekness would be humility. Moses never sought to exalt, to promote himself. He never thought he was better than anybody else. He, he never sought leadership. In fact, he tried to get out of it uh, every chance that he could. Uh, not as a rebel, he just didn't see himself as, as being able to do that. Uh, Moses had a humble spirit that had him so dependent on God for everything. And, and, and by the way, this is God's opinion of Moses. This isn't Moses saying, man, I'm the most humble person in the world. How in the world could they criticize me? God is saying, there's nobody as humble as Moses. Do you realize what an amazing compliment that is from the mouth of God? Because God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Brother Adam, may I bar you for a moment? Okay. I will be God. I know you thought he was taller. Okay, stand right over here. And here's Brother Adam. He is the proud. Okay? In everybody's life, no matter how proud they are, there come moments when they need God. God will see to it that you do. So here's this guy. He's proud. He he, he thinks his talent makes him better than everybody or his knowledge makes him better than everybody. Or here's, how, how about this one? Um, I don't do what everybody else does. Yeah, the proud. Now he needs God and he's gonna come to God. He needs God's help. That's what grace is. Grace is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. So he's gonna come, just bear with me. He's coming. The Bible says God resisteth the proud. Keep coming. God resisteth the proud. God's allergic to you. He wants nothing, not you, Adam, okay? <laughs> he looked like he was going to cry, and I felt so bad. God's allergic to pride. He can't stand it. Lucifer was the, the, the cherub that covered, uh, covereth according to the book of Ezekiel. That means he was the angel that God created closest to the throne. In Lucifer was created all the perfection of beauty and wisdom and talent and knowledge. But it was pride that lifted him up when he said, I will be like the most God. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And Lucifer was cast out of heaven. God hates pride. God's allergic to pride and so when the proud come to God God shoves them away but the same verse that says God resisteth the proud says he giveth grace to the humble let's switch nature here here's a man that treats other people right and doesn't see himself as better than anybody and is always looking out for others and puts other people first. Here's a man who realizes how much he needs God and he, he, never, he never thinks of himself in terms of greatness or grandeur and he comes to God and said, oh God, I need your help. God gives grace to the humble. God draws that person near. Thank you, Brother Adam. Apologize for the beating up. Don't do it again. 
Do you realize when God said, now the man Moses was very meek, he was more meek than all the people on the earth. Do you understand the compliment God was giving about Moses? Moses told us he had no talent. He was not an eloquent speaker. He said he was slow of speech. Some think he had a very, very pronounced stutter. Uh, Moses just didn't, he, he had a past. Anybody here have a past? He had a past. And he just always thought that limited him in all these ways. And God looked at him and he saw this man and said, that's the meekest man on the planet. Is it any wonder God blessed Moses and used Moses and spoke to Moses with everybody else? In fact, God would point this out um, in, in Numbers 12 to Miriam and Aaron. He's saying with, he said, I'll speak to people sometimes through visions or dreams, but not so with Moses, my servant. I'll speak to him face to face. I like him because of his humility. That's God saying that about him. Turn, if you would, to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I know it's in here. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, these would be angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. The Lord said unto Satan, Whence cometh thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Just walking out, checking out people. He's a roaring lion that walketh about, seeking who may devour. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? Now earlier we read about his great wealth that he was the richest of the men of the East. You know, he was the Elon Musk of his day and more. I mean, there was nobody could have his wealth. God doesn't care about that. God doesn't mention that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and eschew with evil. The word eschew means to shun. Remember how I pushed Brother Adam away when he was picturing pride? That's the way Job was to sin. He didn't play with it. He didn't think slightly off-colored jokes were funny. He found them repulsive. Job was a man that when sin reared its ugly head, even in the most minutest form, Job would shove that away and say, I don't want that. I don't want that in my life. I don't want that in my family. I don't want that in my marriage. And Job was that person. This is God bragging on Job to none other than the devil himself. He said, have you even considered in all your travels, my servant Job, there is none like him in all the earth. What a testimony before God. Look at chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. By the end of chapter 1, Job is penniless. Job's 10 children have perished in a single day. Look at verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to pre present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence cometh thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Here it is, verse 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? By the way, if you stop there, that's almost word for word from what he said in chapter 1 before all the trials started. God's still bragging on Job, and Job's penniless. Job's childless now. 
Job is broken. Job is forsaken by his friends and his family. He's living in the city dump, as we'll learn later on. But God's still bragging on him. God never brags on anybody because of their talent or their looks or their money or their house or their clothes or their car. God looks on the heart. He wants a heart that's right. And Job still had it. Look what God goes on to say in verse number three. Uh, again, hast thou considered my servant Job there's, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And look at this. And still he holdest fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. In spite of everything that's happened, he is holding on tighter and tighter to his integrity he might lose his wealth, but he's not going to lose God. He might lose his children, but he's not going to lose his sense of right and wrong. Everybody else might forsake Job, but Job is not going to forsake God. Job might even wonder if God has forsaken him, but Job is not going to forsake God. This is God giving, if you will, the ultimate compliments to these individuals. And these people, um, they, they didn't have halos when they walked around and they didn't glow in the dark. Well, Moses kind of did for a, a while after, over the rest of his life, his face did. But I mean, in, they, they were normal people like you and I. We know Moses had some anger issues and, and we know later on in the story that Moses uh, had some questions about God and got a tad self-righteous on things uh, and so forth. These were human beings, flesh and blood like us for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God but in spite of all of that these are people that God looked down and they had such an incredible testimony with God that God said let me tell you about my boy there's none like him in all the earth Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and time is really getting away from me when God saw Gideon for the first time, Brother Tim just taught an amazing Sunday school lesson the last hour about this. We know that the angel of the Lord that came to Gideon was none other than an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And when the Lord approached Gideon, Gideon is threshing wheat behind a wine press. You take wheat to a threshing floor. You take grapes to a wine press. He's there hiding from the Midianites, trying to get a little bit of food to feed his family. It is a risky venture. It is nighttime and so forth. And the Lord appears to him. And the very first thing God says to Gideon is, Hail, thou mighty man of valor. Gideon didn't think he was a man of valor. He didn't think he had leadership capabilities. He, he didn't walk around saying, I have more faith than everybody else. I'm a better Christian than everybody else. None of that. But when God looked at him, he saw something that even Gideon couldn't see. He said, hail thou mighty man of valor. We could just keep going on. We'll just give one more. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon. And look, if you would, please, he's recounting Israel's history. Acts 13, verse 21. And afterward they, that's the Israelites, desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. 
We know that Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else in the nation. We know that when God called him to be king, that he was a humble man and he, he, he did not want that responsibility. He did not see himself in, in any way being able to do it. But after three years of, of, of success on the battlefield and three years of being king, he started thinking, maybe I am a great person. Maybe I am important. And pride moved into his life. And we already mentioned how God feels about that. Verse 22, when he, that's God, had removed him, that Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he, God, gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. By the way, David was a child, at best a teenager, when God said that, I have found a man after my own heart. When Samuel came into the city of Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king, he called Jesse and said, bring all your sons to a feast because we're not going to eat until I've done what I've been sent here to do. Jesse brought all of his boys. He had seven of them. He brought all these boys. The first several are all big strapping guys. To look at them, they had royal bearing. We know that some of them were, were soldiers in Saul's army, so they were strong, powerful men. They looked like leaders. The only son he didn't bring was David. David was the kid. God would never choose a kid to be king. God rejected Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah, one after another, just kept rejecting him. He said, I, I can't use them. He said, I, I don't look the way you do. Man looks on the outward appearance, but I'm looking on the heart, and these guys don't have a heart for God. He said, but there is a member of this family that does. It was the youngest. It was the most overlooked that they left out in the field feeding sheep. With a whole bunch of teenagers in here, can I, can I help you understand an entire nation? God found nobody that loved him as much as that boy did. He said, I'm searching out a man after my own heart, and there he is. He overlooked all the men and all the soldiers and everybody else and said, it's the boy that loves me. To every young person in this room, what does God think of when he thinks of you? What word comes to mind? Does he see you as meek? Does he see you as someone that pleases him? Does he see you as someone that walks with God? Does he see you as a person of integrity that fears God and eschews evil? Does he see you that way? Or does he see you as a sneak? Does he see you as a rebel? Does he see you as kind of dirty? See, he sees. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. The Savior said before the multitude, what did you go out to see? And he said, it certainly wasn't a reed shaken with the wind because he didn't really have a real happy, positive, you know, uh, you know self-esteem self kind of message. He called you a bunch of snakes and said, get right with God. 
You didn't go out to see a guy clothed in soft raiment. He wore the rough, rough-hewn things, and, and he ate a simple diet, and he was a, he was a man's man. But what did you go out to see? Oh, yeah, he's a prophet, but he was more than that. He was prophecy fulfilled. But let me tell you what you really saw. You saw the greatest man that's ever been born of women. Can you just think about that for a moment? That's God saying that about John the Baptist. Remember Muhammad Ali? I am the greatest. You know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Nah, he's not even close to being the greatest. John the Baptist was. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find... So here's what this message is all about. The question that is before us today, when God looks at you, what does he see? What is God's opinion of you? He has one. It is an opinion you've earned before God. When God looks at you, does he see a saved person or someone just pretending to be? When God looks at you, does he see a sincere person or a person just going through the, the, the motions to get mom and dad off their back or to do what they got to do just to get by? Or does he see somebody that truly just loves God and, and God is just, they're just consumed with God? When God looks at you, does he see a soul winning person that has a burden for lost people or just talks about having one? When God looks at you, does he see a sanctified person or is that just an image you have when you come to church? When God looks at you, does he see a sweet person that's kind to everybody, not just your select few and your little group? What is God's opinion of you? Here's the second question. And this is the hard one. This is the one that after 43 years of ministry, I'm more burdened about than I've ever been. Does God's opinion of you even matter to you? I'm convinced that there are people that it doesn't matter how many sermons they're going to hear, how many verses they're going to be shown. They really don't care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to be what, I, what I'm going to be. Your choice. But when God's looking for the next David... He's going to pass you by. When God's looking for the next John, he's going to leave you out. When God's looking for the next person that is so close to him, God says, I just want to be close to you too. Like Enoch, he's just going to pass you by. So what is God's opinion of you? And does that opinion of God really matter at all? It should. It should. It, it, it really should. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our diligence. He, he is worthy of our time, our talent, our treasure. He is worthy of every fiber of our being. He is worthy of every breath that we breathe. He is worthy of a walk to, to God, with God that is worthy of his name. He's worthy of that. He's exalted. There's none like him in all the earth. He is God Almighty. How dare we think that God ought to be happy with the, the scraps of Christianity we throw his way when it's convenient. God deserves so much more. 
so much more. Would you bow your head and close your eyes?